I'm, I'm the test trial. It'll save me some work and others some work for recording at, at Zion since we don't have this, all the equipment. Anyway, good afternoon. It's a, the second day of the Feast of Tabernacles. I did work up some uh, uh, statistics and I forgot to bring them. But it's sort of like uh, uh, the feast lasts seven days for us. But that represents a thousand years. Uh, each day is equivalent to a, about 127 days. I mean years, rather. Each day of the feast is equivalent to that. So, and then each hour is equivalent to about six years. So how have you done so far? I mean, here it is now. 250 years have passed right now. So we have to think, how, how are we doing? Are we uh, able to reach other people and, and uh, show them God's way of life? The right way of life. We live in a in a very different time. Uh, I did listen to a a fellow today. He's called the uh, um, legal man. His language isn't the greatest, but he's been a, a lawyer for thirty years. And he did point out. He, he said, uh, if you want to take the governor to task for what you're doing, he said good luck. Because there's no way you're going to do it. They have so many loopholes to keep you from ever taking them to court. You know, there's about seven things he pointed out. And he said, if you get past those seven and you do get through a, a local court, uh, what happens is when you go to the, the next court, they throw you out because you haven't got enough stuff. There's so many things. And he did point out, well, our system is so great. It, you can just trust nobody. Make a difference who it is. Uh, I listened to a little bit of Roy Potter too, and he's the same way. He he says you can't trust any of them. One, they lie right to your face, and the other, they lie behind your back. So they're all telling the not telling the truth. But anyway, this is the second day of the feast. For me, I remember back a lot. I this is actually my 56th year at the feast. I've had a lot of good feasts. I've had some shaky feast. I can tell you one feast when I was in Worldwide that I I can't remember if we even had services. It was so bad. <laughs> That's because I went to Nassau, Bahamas. That was a vacation, not a feast. I'm sorry. When you do things like that, I had too many teenagers, too many activities, was threatened to be beat up because I required my children to obey me and not go running loose free. And so, but uh, it didn't happen anyway. But that was probably the worst. My best feasts were always Big Sandy. Um, we've had one of those feasts right here. Uh, when we went to Jerusalem, I thought that was fantastic because we were together. Now, I know there were some difficulties happened, but I wasn't, it didn't affect me. I just enjoyed the camping out and fellowshipping. We've had a few of those where we camped out here, and, and that was great. Those were good. And about my tenure here in this unit, this uh, little group, uh, I've only spent 18 months. I mean, 18 years rather than months. 18 years here. Luckily, or fortunately, or by Daryl's blessing, I went to South Africa for two years, and that was great. I mean, 
there our feast site, we were together. We we ate, we we spent time together, we did we just did things together. It was a, a group about this size. Not much bigger than we have. I think it was twenty five or twenty six people. But that was that was great. And the feasts that we've had here were really great. When we camped out and we we just fellowship together, those make good feasts to me. Only one other feast that wasn't too good, and that was in 2017. And uh, my wife died. So that was a real difficult one. But, but basically, the feasts are great. But what makes the feast great? You ever think about that? What makes the feast great? My first point, and i got a few points here. My first point is... Uh, God's Spirit, not enough. Or is God's Spirit enough to make your feast great? Is it that all we need is to have God's Spirit? I want to tell you a little story, and then we'll go into scriptures. A, a man back in the early 1800s owned a piece of property, a, a farm down in South Africa. And... Over the years, he felt that he wasn't progressing like he ought to. He didn't think that uh, he was making the, the funds that he really wanted. And he heard rumors of how they were make, they were finding gold all over the top of the surface of the ground. Anybody could come over there and make millions of dollars real easy. So he sold his farm, sold everything he had, took his money, sailed to a to America and went across the country from the east coast to the west coast and over a period of years because finding gold wasn't like it had been said you know too often you hear rumors that don't really work out so he wound up all the money that he made went to wine women song and trying to make some gold, which he didn't do, and wound up dying a pauper. No money, no nothing, nothing. Meanwhile, back in South Africa, the man bought the farm, and he liked the farm, and he traveled the farm, and he found stones all over all over the ground, in his, and he found one big one, and he took that stone, and he, he, he looked it over, and he liked it, and he finally put it up on a mantle on his fireplace, and he enjoyed the size of it. One day, a, a lady came by to visit him. Now, she had done some research and, and stones and you know jewels and stuff. And she seen that stone. She picked it up. She looked at it real close and went to him and said, uh, Where'd you get this? Because, I mean, this was something spectacular for her. And he said, oh, i got these all over my ground. I mean, out there, I can go any place out there and pick these big stones up. And I'm not this big, but, you know. She said, do you know that you have on record the largest uncut diamond ever found? So here, the man, the first man, sold his farm, which was worth billions, to go make millions and died broke. And the farmer that bought it wound up being a man who had acres of diamonds 
What choice did he make? One made the wrong choice, don't you think? He didn't know what what he had. And it's like so often the pastures look greener on the other side of the fence. I mean we have we have goats constantly sticking their head through the through the fence because they want a a piece of grass on the other side when they have plenty on the right side. But that's just mankind does those things. Let's turn to another story, this time in the Bible, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. It goes on the same line as the farmer who sold out and wound up broke. Luke chapter 15, and we'll begin in verse 11. Verse 11. And he had a certain, and he said, a certain man had two sons. The youngest of of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that fall to me and divide it unto, uh, unto his living. So the father, the son wanted his portion. He wanted more out of life. And it goes on, and not many days after, the younger son gathered up, uh, gathered all he got together, and took his journey into a far country, and there visited, uh, wasted his substance on ravenous living. Isn't it sort of like the farmer who sold good, a good piece of ground and wound up with nothing? So here, this young boy, he wanted more out of life. And what he had, I mean, he had a good life. His father wasn't poor. They had a nice farm, had everything there. But he wanted more out of life. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in in that land, and he began to be at want. So here, he was after, had a better place at home, but he thought he could do better away from home. He could do better than trusting his father. And he went and joined himself to the citizens of that country, and he and he sent him into the field and only to feed the swine. And when he had could uh, faint and have filled his belly with the husks of the swine and eat. And no man gave him anything to eat. He finally, an opposite thing happened with this young man. We can go on and read the rest of the story. But you'll see that this young man woke up. He repented. He turned his life around and went back home to his father. So the one fellow sold a farm, wound up with nothing. This young man decided he wanted more out of life than what he could get. And that happens. I've seen it happen in the church. I've seen it happen in just society where we don't think we have everything that we want or should want or could want. And we, we go and do something that we don't sit down and analyze the situation. I know I made several mistakes. I 
quit a job without um, analyzing whether I could afford it or not. And, you know, I still was blessed because I still went to the Father. But sometimes that doesn't happen. We don't, we don't take and sit down and slow life down to that point where we examine what we're doing ahead of time. Now, there are times, I, I know that there are times when uh, you're driving down the highway and you see a car coming at you head on. You don't have time to sit down and oh, is that guy going to move or he's not going to move? Or uh, And we keep getting closer and closer. And uh, Well, maybe uh, if... Uh, no. There are times when you have to make quick decisions or you die. So somebody coming head at you, and I've had that happen, and I took to the side of the road. Uh, but there are times when if you take the time and think all of it out, you make a better decision. So one of the things that I find in life is that when I say, is God's, is it enough? Is God's Spirit all that we need? God's Spirit is very important in our lives. In fact, it is with God's Spirit that we can understand all that we understand here. And we've learned things about the calendar. We've learned things about the different holy days that others haven't. But God's Spirit allows us to do that and understand, but is that all that we need? Would God's Spirit help you to make the right decision? No, God's Spirit gives you the understanding. It gives you the knowledge and opens up your mind. What's required then is you. So this young man didn't talk to his father about what was going to happen. Didn't try to analyze it. He just said, I'm going to do it. And made a big mistake. So, yes, he could go to his dad, who was very intelligent and very smart, and he had to be to be a farmer with a lot of funds that he had. So, for us, too, is the same thing. Our father is all intelligent. But he gives us a little bit of his spirit. And that's not enough. Because just having a little bit of your spirit won't make the right decisions. Turn to Matthew 13. Here's another instance where, uh, in Matthew 13, where a fellow wanted something and he did something about it. Turn to Matthew 13, verse 44. And this is about the pearl of great price. Matthew 13:44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure that is hid in the field. And when uh, a man find, found a hidden and with joy sells all that he has and buys the field. So here's a person that's looking for the kingdom of God. This is what we should be doing. We want, we have God's spirit. So we know what's offered to us. How much are we willing to put effort into it to achieve that. So yes, we have God's Spirit. 
we understand that heaven or the or God's kingdom is the greatest thing that will happen for us. But do we really apply it in our life? 45. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like to a merchant who's seeking great pearls, who, when he had found one for a great price, went and sold all that he had to buy that one thing. So, just having God's Spirit, having the knowledge which God's Spirit gives us that knowledge of what's out there. Is it all that we need? No, we have to do something. As this merchant who found great treasure bought the field, or the man looking for a great pearl, he had to do more than just say, I'm looking for a great pearl, okay, I found one. Is that enough to find it? Or do you have to do something else? He figured out how to buy that thing. So he put effort into it. So is God's Spirit enough? You have to put some effort and energy into it. We have to make right decisions in our life. Uh, that's very important. Uh, if you have God's Spirit and you make the wrong decision, you might not be there. The ten virgins in Matthew 25. Five of them, um, all of them were virgins. It says ten of them were virgins. All of them had God's Spirit. All of them were knowledgeable of what was in front of them. Five of them put effort forth. And five of them didn't. And we know that five of them, when Christ returned, went with Christ. And the other five were told, go buy gold tried in the fire. Just like it says in Revelation chapter 3 to the Laodicean church. You might know God's work. You might know God's way. But you have to do more than that. You have to make right decisions or it's not going to work out for you. So, in our life, we can make good decisions, and we can make bad decisions. So, let's look at one here in 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. And this is about a we don't hear much about all all the prophets and stuff, but this is a prophet of God who was sent to the king of Israel with a message, and he was given criteria what he had to do, how he had to do it, and it says, And behold, there came a man, verse 1, of God out of Judah, by the word of the eternal, so it's showing that God told him to do this, and go to Bethel to Jeroboam, and stood by the altar to burn incense. And the man of God cried against the altar in the words of the eternal, and said, O altar, altar, thus says the eternal, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Joash by name, and upon you shall 
he burned the priests of the high places that burn incense upon you, and the men's bones shall be burned upon you. So his message was to Israel, to the king, to the altar that was filled with pagan uh, priests, priests that Jeroboam had put in the, into office. And he gave a, a sign uh, that same day, saying, Thus is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes poured out upon the ground. So, he made a prediction of what's going to happen. The king didn't like that, though. And it came to pass when the king Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put his, forth his hand from the altar, saying, Slay hold, or Lay hold on him. And his hand, uh, which he had put forth uh, against him, dried up so that he could not pull it back to him. So here the king was fond of this, to take him when this guy's neck looks like. Uh, for what? Predicting that the altar that he built and his priests are all going to be burned up. He was pretty angry about that. And God allowed him to, his hand to wither where he couldn't use it. You read on, you see where he asked the man of God, to get forgiveness, which he did, and his hand withered, his withered hand became whole again. And right away, the king then, like so many people, I'm going to make this decision. I'm going to give you whatever you want for, you know, because he wanted somebody that could do miracles that would cause the people to come to him. But the man of God, then he said, but the king answered and said unto the man of God, entreat the face of eternal, and that I may, and pray for me that my hand may be restored again, which he did, and it was restored. Then the king said unto her seven, "Can come home with me, and rest yourself, and I will give you a reward." Yeah, the king wanted. He wanted like a lot of the people. He wanted the attention. He wanted. He was looking at future. He's looking at what could be beneficial to him in the future. The man of God then said, when he said, I'll give you a reward. And the man of God said unto him, to the king, If you would give me half of your house, I will not go home with you. Neither will I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it charged me by the word of the eternal, saying, Eat no bread, drink no water, and return again, and, and turn again by the same way that you came. So he was, this was a criteria he had. You to go and tell these things, and when you're done, you go back another way, back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, but don't go the same way, and don't stay there, don't eat, don't drink, don't sleep, you just make your, say your peace and go home. He understood that. This priest, this uh, man of God understood God. 
He knew what God had told him to do. So there was no... It wasn't that he didn't have the knowledge. He knew what he had to do. And he knew he couldn't stay there. And so he went another way, verse 10, and returned by the, the way that he... Not by the way he came. And now there dwelled in an old priest in Bethel. And some... And his sons came and told him the words that the, the man of God had done that in the, that day in Bethel, and the words which had spoken to the king. And then, uh, and then they. I should should have printed these out. I told also uh, their father. So they went to their old, the, an old father, the old prophet. Sons came and told him. So. The old prophet now knew exactly what had happened. You have to understand. He knew what had aspired. He knew what was said. He knew that the man of God was not supposed to stay. He was supposed to go home. Now, notice what happens. Because, um, well, hold our place here. Because I, Let's go to First John. And I want you to read that first. First John chapter 4. You have to understand the background, what this old prophet knew. Uh, everything that had happened. First John chapter 4, verse 1. But, beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So here we, here John is telling us we're supposed to try the spirits. Now here's a, a false prophet who knows everything. He understands everything that's happened. And so the old prophet said to his, uh, said to the, uh, them, the way, ask, ask his kids where, which way he went, for his sons had, uh, seen the way the man of God went which he came from Judah. And the old prophet said to his sons, Saddle my ass, so that, and so they saddled the ass, and he rode on it. And when the man of God, when he had, and went after the man of God, found him sitting under an oak tree. So here he is. He's got something else in mind. He went after it the man of God here and uh, found him underneath an oak tree and he said uh, and the man of God found him under an oak tree are you the man of God that came from Judah and he said I am then he said unto him come home with me and eat bread now notice the the man of God still understood what he was supposed to do, because he said, and he said, I may not return with you, nor go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. So it wasn't that he didn't understand, that he didn't have the knowledge. He's just going to make a wrong mistake. He's going to do something he shouldn't do. For it was said to me, 
I can't go there. Verse 18, And he said unto him, I am a prophet also as you are. And an angel spoke to me. What do we read in John, 1 John 4, verse 1? Many false prophets are out there. He didn't understand that. He said, I too am a prophet. And an angel spoke unto me the word of God, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But this old prophet was lying. The gist of the story is, the man of God made a wrong choice. He went back and ate. Verse 21, And it came to pass, as they sat at the table, that the word of the Eternal came unto the prophet that brought him back. So the old prophet actually got a message from God and said unto the man at the at the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Eternal, For as much as you have disobeyed the mouth of the Eternal, you have to realize that we've been given a lot of understanding. If we disobey, and, and we've heard this in sermons, if you walk away from God, your chances have gone down the tube. Sorry. If you disobey God, you're you're headed in the wrong direction. And you find out, see, that you have disobeyed the eternal. Um, I lost my place. The mouth of the eternal. And have not kept the commandment which the eternal, your God, made to you, but came back and did eat bread and drink water in the place in which the Lord did said to you, eat no bread. He said not to do it, but he did anyway. And it came to pass because he disobeyed God. He made the wrong choice. So yes, he had God's spirit, maybe. He had God's message anyway. He knew it. He can't admit, he cannot deny the fact because he he said three times, I can't go, I cannot stay here, I cannot eat here, I cannot drink here, I have to go back. So he had the knowledge, but what he didn't have was the right drive, the right choice to make. He chose the wrong thing. And you read on, you find that the wrong choice wound up He was attacked and killed by a lion. So, do we make good choices or bad choices? There we can see this man, a prophet of God, who had God's Word, like we do. We get it every Sabbath. We get it every day when we read the Scriptures. You know, Christ, when he was tempted by uh, Satan, and said, uh, why don't you have something to eat? What did, what did Christ say? You do not live by food alone. 
eternal life. It's not by physical food alone. It's by every word of God. So we're, we have the knowledge. But do we live by every word? So Christ is saying, was saying to Satan, you have to live that way of life. You can't just have it in your head. So we have God's Spirit. We can do these things. We know it. We have God's Spirit all the time. I mean, the knowledge of God all the time. Every time we open the Bible, every time we go to Sabbath service and hear a sermon, we get the knowledge. But knowledge, and which is God's Spirit working in us, isn't enough. You have to do something. You have to make the right choices. Another example of whether you do a good choice or a wrong choice, and that's that of David and Goliath. We know that story. We know how David uh, killed Goliath. But one thing about it that's um, really interesting that's that we don't think about, when David went to meet Goliath, Goliath was coming out and challenging God, but challenging Israel. And his challenges and his knowledge and everything he had was based on what? His size? Yes. His years of fighting? Yes. And, and his, his, his self-worth? He thought, there's no, you know, he challenged the whole, <clears throat> whole people. Bring somebody out. <clears throat> nobody was, <clears throat> nobody had the background that Goliath had. Years of being a warrior. Size. His armament weighed somewhere around 150 pounds. David probably weighed 150 pounds, you know. So he challenged Israel. Challenged God, really. He was challenging God. His mistake, Goliath's mistake, was he based everything on self. Self-worth, self-power. I am the greatest. Don't we see that today? <clears throat> we watch movie stars. We watch governors. We, we see uh, kings. Uh, we see different people. And they base their abilities. And this is what Goliath was. My ability to win this battle is on who I am. And we find that today in a lot of areas. Newscasters, I don't care where you go. They base everything they do on who their background, who they are, what they can do, what they have done. And so they go to battle. Samuel, 1 Samuel 17. First Samuel 17. Um, well, we, it leads up, to, leads all the way up to David seeing coming there, hearing Goliath challenging Israel. David as a a youth, a young, a young, maybe not 21, maybe before 21. Nevertheless, he was not a 
a, a seasoned warrior. Uh, you see where he, he asks throughout this chapter, you see where he asks his uh, people, who's this guy that challenges God? And so we get down, let's see, I think verse 38. And Saul armed David with his armament and put it on a helmet on him. And uh, and it was all too much for David. David wasn't used to fighting things this way. And David girded him with his sword and his armament and he and he arrayed ready to go and he had not proved it. So he said, I've never even tried these things out. He's not a warrior. You don't go to battle unless you're ready for battle. So he couldn't put all that on. Um, and so we find he goes on out down on, uh, let's see, verse 42. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David. So here's this giant. Probably 10, 11, between 11, maybe 12 feet tall. You know, it's, it's like looking over here, that bears up the top of that bears tall, maybe 12 feet. Uh, pretty tall. And David is probably 5, 9, 10, something in that area. I mean, he's turned his head back. So here in 44, and the Philistines said to David, Come to me. And I'll give your flesh to the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. He was saying, I am that powerful. I am that good. That, uh, first of all, you send a kid out here against me. You, you belittle me. But notice what David did. And David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Who is going to win the battle? David's choice wasn't his size, wasn't his speed, wasn't Anything about him. David chose God for his protection, for his armament, for everything. Goliath came out there and said, I am the best of the best. His choice was wrong. Because we know what happened. God guided the stone and David took off his head. That was the end of the story. So there, when you read verse 45, this is a very important point of that, is that David's choice wasn't on strength and speed. It was on God. And that has to be our choice in life. It's not who we are. You know, we're a little group, so we're not, we're not some organization that's got Four or five hundred, or maybe two or three or four thousand. I mean, some several organizations got a large, a lot of people, and when they hold a feast, they have it in many different places, and they also are not meeting together either. 
a lot of the church isn't meeting together. They are virtual churches. In other words, they're watching it on on the internet or on the telephone. So what choice are we making? Are we going to make good choices or bad choices? The difference between the two, between the man of God, the choice he made, his choice was bad. He did not trust God all the way. We can go back to Adam and Eve. God put them in a garden and said, everything is yours, except one thing. You can have a thousand years of life. But, you know, he gave them a choice. But, if you eat of the one tree, this day you'll die. Well, we say, well, they didn't die that day. Uh, I'm sure Adam watched Eve eat that fruit and kind of watched it aside and she didn't waver or nothing. He just made the wrong choice, didn't he? He didn't live a thousand years. God was talking a thousand years. Probably 7,000 years he could have lived. We don't know. He know we know he didn't live a thousand because he made the wrong choice. And so many people make the wrong choice. My point three I had is it's not my fault. Sometimes I make a wrong choice and uh, I make a wrong decision, a wrong thing, I turn in the wrong direction. I try to find somebody else to blame it on because I don't make the wrong choices. I always do right. You know, my first wife never, uh, she never challenged me that way. She always helped me make the right choices, or take my wrong my wrong decisions and make them work out. Anyway, uh, is it my fault? When you make a wrong decision and it doesn't work out, do you look somebody else to point the blame to? Turn over to James chapter one. here. James chapter 1, we want, to, we want to blame God sometimes for the problems that happen to us. Just like Adam, you know, he wanted to blame, he blamed his wife and then he blamed God when he made the wrong decision. James chapter 1, beginning verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Oh, so when we get a temptation, we make a we get tempted to do something. Uh, is it easy to say, well, God put that out there? Or maybe the devil did too. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. So he says, God's not tempting you. But it's easy. Uh, we see that with Adam. God, if you wouldn't have given me this woman, I wouldn't have done that. It's your fault. 
So do we, when we make the wrong decision, do we uh, try to justify the mistake by blaming somebody else? But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticements. So sometimes if we just sit back and say, okay, I really wanted to do that, and I made that decision, and it didn't work out, I guess it's my fault. <laughs> but no, it's, I'd rather, you know, especially if it's a financial decision and you go way down in the hole, you don't say that was that other person did that to me. Yeah. No, that's not, not what we do. There's another, another case, uh, an, another instance where, uh, we make the wrong decisions. In Exodus chapter 32, and I'm, I'm not going to turn there for time, I'm going to just, you know the story. In Exodus 32, uh, Moses was up on the mountain getting God's word to bring back to the people, and he made the wrong decision, made some, made a goat, and, and what did he do? He said, the people made me do it. <laughs> I didn't do, I didn't really want to do that. I didn't want to make a, 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 an idol out of gold. No, the people were the fault. So again, you go back there and read that, that story, Exodus 32, 22 through, through that whole area right there. Just, you read it on your time at home. Another instance where People blame somebody else for their faults. And this will be about King Saul. Again, one we really know. First Samuel. Chapter 15. So here in chapter Chapter 15, the story leads up to King Saul being given the commission to go out and kill the Amalekites. He was told exactly what to do. It's just like the, the prophet from, from uh, Judah was told exactly what to do, how to do it, told to take and kill all the Amalekites not to bring anything back, kill all their animals, kill all the men, kill all the people, bring nothing back. Did he do it? Verse 18. Chapter 15, verse 18. And, uh, and uh, 17. And Samuel said, when you were uh, little in your own eyes and you had made the head, the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners of Amalekites. Fight against them until they be consumed. That means completely destroyed. Wherefore, when you do... You are, you obey the voice of the Lord. But did, 
you're upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord? Wherefore then did you not obey the voice of the eternal? Oh, something went wrong. Why did Samuel say that? But did upon, but did light fly upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the eternal? And Saul said to Samuel, yes, yes. I have obeyed the voice of the Eternal and have gone the way which the Lord has sent and have brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and utterly destroyed it. Wait a minute. God said utterly destroy them. And he said, I utterly destroyed them, but I brought back the king. So did he do what God said? No, he brought back the king. He brought something back that he wasn't supposed to do. Exactly the same with the old prophet. He didn't obey the voice of God. But the people... Now notice, here's here's Saul's answer to the the whole thing. Uh, But the people took the spoil, sheep and goat, uh, oxen, and the chief of the things which they had... Uh, been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the to uh, the Lord our God in Gilgal. Did Saul do his job? You know, a king is in charge of the whole shooting match. It's like the president of our country. He is the commander in chief. And if he says okay, it's okay. And if he says it's not okay, it's not okay. So if the people brought the stuff back, whose fault was it? Not the people. It was his job to say, bring nothing back. But he did. He brought it back. So whose fault does God put the problem on? The people? Well, yeah, they had their part in it. And they had to suffer too. But the king was the guy that all... He was the one where they say the buck stops there with him. So do we have the right to blame somebody else when we make the wrong decision? If we... You know, we're not... We must have a loose wire. Uh... We're not called to just sit in Sabbath services or to read our Bible or to do our own thing. God called us. We have a responsibility not only to sit here, but to focus and do God's Word. We must obey every word that comes from God. All of it. We can't just make a decision to uh, do our own thing. So, then the last point that I got is, what does God want from us? Proverbs chapter 8.
Proverbs chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 32. Proverbs 8, verse 32. Now, therefore, hearken unto me, O you children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction, and be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that hears me, watches daily at my gate, wants at the post of the door, for who so finds me finds life. So, we're required, God wants us to look for him and shall obtain favor in the eternal life. But he that sins against me rots his own self, soul, for all they hate me love death. God wants what? He says he wants us to look for him. You know, put your uh, nose to the grindstone, your shoulder to the road, and get going. He doesn't want you to sit back and just say, I'm hearing again the ten virgins, again Revelation chapter 3, the Laodicean church, uh, even the first church where God said, remember I brought it out the last time, you have forgotten your first love. We can't forget these things. God wants more from us than just to be hearers of the word. To be hearers of the word. In Luke ten forty one through forty two, you can read that later. Uh, that's the case where Christ went into uh, to eat with the disciples. And Martha was out there trying to get groceries fed to feed the people, and and Mary was sitting there listening to Christ, and her complaint was. Uh, send Mary to give me a hand. You know, I've seen deacons like that in the church. You know, they, they want they want others to help them do their job, and others are sitting there listening to God. In Christ, all Christ said was, "Mary, I can't take away from her what she wants. She wants to know the truth. She was putting her choice was to hear God, to hear Christ." Mary's choice, I mean Martha's choice, was to feed the people. So God wants us to strive to hear and work at hearing. One more scripture. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, toward the end, chapter 30. Start verse 15. It's line 30. <laughs> chapter, chapter 30, verse 15. Here, Moses was teaching the people. This is before Moses died. Just before they went into the promised land. This is what God was telling the whole nation of Israel. See, I have set before you this day life and good, and death, and evil. 
I'm, I'm telling you what's, what I'm doing for you. I'm giving you a choice to make. You can have life or you can have death. You can have good or you can have evil. In, in that I command you this day, verse 16, to love the eternal your God, to walk in His ways. That is action. That's walking. That's doing something. And to keep the commandments and His statutes and His judgments that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God shall bless you in the land whether you shall go to possess it. So He's telling us, I'm asking you to make a choice. I'm giving you two opportunities. Adam and Eve had two opportunities. The old prophet, or the young prophet, Saul, David, Goliath. God put in front of every one of us the opportunities. He wants us to make the wise decisions, the right decisions. Verse 19. And I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursings. Therefore, choose life that both you and your seed may live. God is setting that in front of us. We have to make that choice. We have the choice to decide what is important and what is not. So is just having God's Spirit enough? Is that all we need? To say, yeah, I have God's Spirit. I, I can read the Bible and I can understand it. Is that all we need? You know, we can say that. We can say, I know I'm going to be a part of the God's way of life. But then we see that there are a number of people that reject God, reject the calling, that put no effort and, and any into their way of life, the right way of life. So you can have God's Spirit and still not be a part of God's way of life. You can still have God's Spirit, but not go into the kingdom of God. We have to make the right choices. Choice then becomes as important in our life to becoming God as God's Spirit. Because whatever way you turn, you, you, can, you can do the right way, or you can listen to the wrong people, you know. Uh, the uh, prophet, he listened to a lying prophet. God says there's going to be out there. Read Jude. Read the rest of First John. Says that, and even Matthew 24 says, be careful. The first thing he says, don't be deceived. Because you have a chance if you put forth effort and energy coupled with God's Holy Spirit in making wise, right decisions, you have a choice and an opportunity to be a part of God's way of life. 
And we can do like Christ did. Remember, just before he was taken into captivity to be beaten, uh, stoned, lied about, slapped, cursed, spit on, he knew all this was happening. He knew uh, uh, Proverbs, I mean, uh, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. He knew that. He knew what was heading for him. And he, after he spent the time, Matthew, uh, yeah, John 14, 15, 16, 17, he went off to the Mount of Olives to pray. He knew these things. He'd already told the disciples. They walked with God. They didn't have God's Spirit. And while he went to pray, they slept. And in his prayer, he said to the Father, speaking as a human being, you know, I paraphrase it, Father, I don't want to be beaten. I don't want to be stoned. I don't want to be spitten. I don't want to be nailed to a stake. But he said what we should say. Not my will, but yours be done. So when we're faced with a difficulty, we need to go to God. We need to ask for help. We need to ask for wisdom to make the right decisions because that's going to get us in the right place. And to do not my will, you say, not my way. I want to do it your way, Father. 